I'm going to go golfing, surfing, skating, movies, and I'm going to grab a pack of Higgs because that's the activity that I want to pair cannabis with. And I think then if you can start showing that that's what your brand is all about, then you've built a real brand and you've built a real following and you've built real people. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to an episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Oliver Higgins, CEO and founder of Higgs. Oliver, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Uh, fantastic. Thank you much, so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on this. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Oliver, kind of dive into California brands and, and cannabis as a whole. And, you know, it's just really refreshing to have a West Coaster back on the on the on the pod. We've had a lot of East Coasters recently. So really excited. Uh, how are you, Brian? Hey, I'm doing good. And of course, Higgs does have some ties to the West Coast, but I know he's on the East Coast where he's frequently visiting the East Coast with some of his his future opportunities. So I think it's fair to split that 50-50. Higgs, if you had to choose a coast, West Coast, East Coast. Don't, uh, don't make me do that because I was born in New York City once upon a time and not through, you know, my own decision making. I was then moved to Los Angeles around like six years old and raised there. So I'm very much a New York City person, kid at heart. Like that will never change. But like I'm a West Coast kid. Like the ethos of Higgs, like everything about the brand, like is LA, like with that like still 20, 30% like New York City raw, like early 90s, just like everything, you know, our generation appreciate and the next generation kind of looks up to is like what we thought like the 60s were like, this like mythical period. I feel like that's what like kids look at like at the 90s and like, you know, pre-internet cell phone, whatever. I mean, I was just having a conversation with this girl. She's like, oh my God, I can film this at like the clubs in Miami. And I was like, oh my God, in college, I used to bring my like mini DVR camera that they'd like let me film in and then go back to film class and like edit this. So I'm like, oh, aged myself out right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. So let's talk cannabis. And when did you get into it? How how did you find your way into cannabis? So, I mean, smoked my first joint at 13 years old, playing like GoldenEye and N64, you know, summer, summer of middle school. And then that was just kind of like, you know, you smoked weed in California. That was just like part of the, like, what you did growing up. Like, it's not like we didn't like drink or have those kind of high school parties. It was like kind of like a West Coast, you know, mentality. But I was in college, as I mentioned, Miami. I came home one summer and then like medical California kind of like quickly became like a mainstream thing. Like I went to this guy, got a medical card. And that day I bought plants and planted them in my garage. And then I grew weed for 10 years as a hobby because it was just like a fun thing to do. Like you could legally do it and like nothing better than growing your own stuff. For sure. And then getting started, was there a thought when you're during that period, you were going to start your own brand? It was one that just kind of just trickled into fruition. No, again, it was like kind of just like a side hobby thing. And I like from LA, I went to film school. Like I thought I'd be a director, which I kind of did after college, started my own production company and like went to go work for an HBO writer and a couple of those shows. And then kind of not like disillusioned by Hollywood. I just like grew up in this world. It just felt kind of small and I wanted to do something else. And it was either like keep making films, maybe move to New York, London, something that's like different than LA, but ultimately like I love California. Like you just can't beat Southern California lifestyle for me. So stay here and do something else. And a friend had opened up a dispensary. So he knew I grew. He's like, Hey, why don't you grow for the dispensary and rebrand the store? And then about six months into that, that got shut down. And at that point I was like, well, I'm full in cannabis. Like this is what I've always kind of wanted to do. Like I've been a part of this, whether I've, you know, thought it or not for so long. And I've started clothing companies before I had the film company. So like, how can I do that under one banner? And being a joint smoker, I just wanted to create my own product that I would want for myself. So you started uh, growing 
uh, inside, inside a garage? Like how quickly did it scale? Was it like one plant inside with like one light kind of talk us through the progression of that. It's, and then, it's so funny. Cause like, we basically turned my garage into kind of like this, like smoking den, you know, like you're away from your parents. It's like the, like that 70s show type thing, you know, like here's the garage where all the bad things happen. And there's this little like four by four closet. And I was like, I'm going to grow weed in there one day. And then like, I'd been to Amsterdam a bunch. I loved like that culture. So I ordered all my seeds from like Barney's and the gray area, a couple of their cup winners. And I started growing yeah, in this little four by four with these like old school lights. And then I would say within a few years, the entire garage was a full on grove. You know, like had a veg, like inside had the tent for veg, had the double flower rooms, like, you know, like double rooms when you open up the garage, you're walking through another room. Yeah, it's funny. I actually just destroyed the room recently. Like my uh, neighbors were moving and they had one of those big like cargo type like construction things. And I was like, all right, there's no time that I'm ever going to be able to get rid of all this. So I just like, skill sawed and hammered the entire structure and like was throwing like lights and grow trays into this thing. It was, it was hilarious. So it's a real garage again. Ton, ton of history. You just kind of tossed out, just working through like uh, an opportunity there. Yeah, a little melancholy, maybe. A little melancholy moment there. Yeah. I got, you know, I, I, cause there's parts now where like Higgs is stabilized. I know I think people are always like, Oh, do you still grow? And I'm like, I just, you either can, you're either a farmer or you're something else. And like, even as a hobby grower, like I got some tomato plants out here that if I'm gone for a few days, it's just like, it's not the same. But now yeah. I wish I had some of those lights that I could still like do some personal strains. I'm a big California sativa guy, not California sativa, but like we have more sativas, but yeah, I'm a sativa smoker. So I'd like to just grow for my own personal use again. So take us through the origin of the brand and then kind of like, what was the early purpose and like the product portfolio that you had envisioned? I mean, again, I was a joint smoker. So I wanted something that was like cool, chic pack that like you would put on the table. And it just kind of like serendipitously happened on the design. I was like, actually in New York, I was in the Hamptons one summer. I had like a couple of weddings out there. So like, I just asked a buddy if I could stay at his house. Brought my like skateboard out there. I have like these funny videos of me holding on to like ice cream cart trucks. I'm like 27 is at the highway out there. And I met these kids who were like working at like in the East Hampton, the like double RL store. There's like 11 kids living in this old brothel house. And one of these, I was telling this guy about my idea to start like this, like joint company. He's like, hold on, I'll be right back. And he comes down he's like, once a year, one of my buyers from China brings me these cigarettes. I think they're called harmonization. And they look like a, like Casa Mi or like a, a nice tequila presentation. It opens up, there's four packs on the top, four on the bottom. The packs look incredible. It's like handpicked tobacco. And I was like, oh, that's what I want Higgs to look like. So the original Higgs looked like cigarettes. I like, bought a little single injector machine and in my loft downtown was just like making single cigarettes for two years. It makes a ton of sense, right? You see it and you instantly knew in that moment, that's exactly the way you wanted to go. So kind of getting started, was there a time where you realized that the brand was starting to pick up and that people were starting to identify with it? Yeah. Although like I always joke that we were like two years too late and two years too early. Like we launched right before legalization happened. So like, as far as like our medical caregiver Higgs product was only on the shelves for a few months. And then it wasn't on the shelves again for a year. So like, I think the early trials and tribulations for us was not having that, was just like broken momentum as soon as we launched from both like that perspective, from new packaging to any sort of rules and regulations. Like I rented a place downtown waiting for a license for a year and spent, you know, a lot of the company's money because that's what they told us we were going to have to do. So in those early days when you started the brand, were you kind of just strictly utilizing the flower that you've been growing or were you also sourcing? Yeah, it was a a friend who grew up in a... Carmel area, you know, it was a medical caregiver license. He grew some like, you know, it was green crack, a couple other ones. Fire. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, it was a, 
it was an easier model, obviously. Uh, yeah. Because there was no track and trace metric. It was, you know, it was much easier, but hard product to manufacture. I mean, the joint is still an imperfect thing in the cannabis industry, which is like, that's my one regret. Like, I'm not an edible person, but like, I'd much rather be churning out thousands of edibles on like a recipe in like modern factory than like we're still on knock boxes and like, yeah. you know, 40 people in a place. But no they matter, were the best. No matter who you are. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what do you think is needed in order to get it to like the level where you're envisioning it to be perfect? Oh, someone being able to like actually like invest in the CapEx machine, not on a crazy interest rate, not because, and like real banking, like we just don't have that kind of machinery. And it's going to take a lot of R and D. Like the consistency of cannabis isn't the same of tobacco. You can't just like throw it through a modern cigarette machine and it's going to burn the same. Nor do people want like a heavy paper like they do with cigarettes because it's just a different product. So, I mean, you'll find the cheaper stuff will end up being like tobacco. You know, here's a cheap pack of like low quality flour grown outside and there's a world for that. And I can't wait for that. But like, not what necessarily we're trying to do, which is still like we want to be a premium joint. Yeah, and it sounds like it's hard to invest in that paper. Yeah, it sounds like it's hard to invest in something like that because of the fragmentation of the market as well, right? Like a machine like that sounds like a factory, and you could probably supply the whole state of California um, or the whole country. Part. I mean, like yeah, exactly. You, know, you talk to any modern distribution company, it's like Coca-Cola. You might have some bottling factories elsewhere, but like you have main distribution hubs that go from one place to the next and then it disperses from there. I'm not like yeah. going to six different factories in like six different states and countries to check in on like all those procedures and make sure like, you know, it's, yeah, it's complicated. How, how many struggles along the way? I think one of the most fascinating parts for me is like hearing someone like yourself who's accomplished a ton, but also like you got started with an idea and then you kind of just iterated a bunch of times. Was it as seamless as you're kind of making described or was there like a million obstacles and challenges oh, along the way? Absolutely not. It's still not seamless. Like, you know, I, I'm so invested because like I put everything in this company. I will never let this company fail. So like, it doesn't matter what I have to do. Like I have to live at home at a time. So like my company survives, like whatever I have to do, like I've done to make sure like, and then you I'm like, yeah, I, I don't even know if I could go into every single detail, but just, you know, everything has been a struggle, every little detail of it. And just like, you know, then there's people like don't pay you and we still don't have like good AR. And all of a sudden, you know, you're trying to operate a real company and not getting paid by people that have sold your product already. I think that's the important thing that I always want people to remember is that just because you make a great product and just because you're doing everything right, if people around you who are kind of outside of your straight of like delivering on a good product, just kind of screw you. It influences how your business is. And as like a, a smaller brand compared to some of these larger companies, some of these, these decisions that, other people influence on are critical could kill you. And that's the part that I always want people to remember is just how complex the industry is and how interconnected, you know, the industry is from a individual standpoint. Yeah, completely. And you know, if it, we don't have a, you know, deep bankroll, like there are months where it's like, okay, this doesn't come in, like, what are we going to do? And like, that's just one of those things that just being a business owner, like problem solving, that's all I do all day of like problem solve. And I think that's probably what my greatest skill set is as like a founder, CEO, whatever you want to call it. Uh, of doing that because it's it's super heightened cannabis over you know a bunch of other industries for everything we've already mentioned and like I'm sure a thousand more things we're going to mention along the way on this podcast you know do you think that it uh helped you guys just kind of focusing and keeping your ethos on the, the pre-rolls and just kind of trying to keep your eye focused on that product that speaks to you originally i thought so but no i wish we had from the start at least added like some jarred flour. Like we have a whole gamut of products now because of that question you just asked, because like, hey, we're just not at a place where a single product category, especially not like one that's not infused or some specialty thing 
can really move the needle for a brand. Like you got to have more access to more customers, you know? And then the next generation of kids like isn't even smoking flour, they're smoking vape. So like I got to hedge and like look forward to like those, you know, new customers and what kind of form factor they're going to be using. But I think you can say now we're a flour company while still having, you know, jarred flour, pre-roll joints and live resin vapes. Like that to me, then you're still one segment of this. Like we're not going to go to edibles. We're not going to go to beverages. Like, you know, we still are pretty focused, just not as super narrow as you can be in other CBG, you know, industries. Like I think in any other world you can, and that's always been the thing. And all my advisors and mentors are like, no, stick to this and be the best version of that. And like some company, you know, like a Jeter, I think has done that very well, but that's still, again, they almost invented a new product category in a place in California, which made infused take off worldwide. Like all of a sudden, 40% of, in, of joints were infused in California, like overnight. And then the entire world adapted to that. So like, you know, there are special circumstances to these, I think a 710 labs, but again, you're creating a product segment that then you have a leg up for 10 years. I think it's like why Wana did well. You know, I, as much as you want to say, I love California and being from here, I would have never wanted to start a cannabis company here. You know, I think the advantage, like I've now always been like, cool, we're a California brand. Where else can we be? As opposed to like other places, like we can start here and then decide if we want to move or not. Like you've seen the people have left California from the big MSOs. Like it's a struggle here, no matter who you are. So like, you're not going to dominate California. So you better have some irons in the fire elsewhere. And like, it'll make you great, but but uh, I love that question astray, but sorry. <laughs> I know. I mean, <laughs> resilient too, right? Exactly. Like you said, is that like the ability to have to pivot and problem solve immediately knowing that someone like Jeter is influencing a, a, a shift in the product category and pretty much overnight you're left being like, okay, like it's time to either understand, is this something that we can adopt and do, or should we just avoid it? But it's a big challenge. Totally. And I never like, Oh, Jeter's doing this or another brand's doing this. Like, I want to do that. That's not my focus. My focus is always like, what do I want to do? But those things kind of like happen on their own, I, I, I think. And like, what, what do we need to do to make ourselves the best company rather than what is the new product trend? I mean, I think I tell that to cultivators all the time. I'm like, stop growing a hundred different strains to try and get ahead of the next new thing. When like some of the best flower companies, like a cannabis is like, here's the four strains we've been growing for three years that you all love and want to consistently buy. I don't need a variation all the time. You do as a grower because you smoke all the weed in all the world. A recreational customer doesn't need that. So I think it's a, it's a similar thing. So is that something that you actually like reserve with your cultivation partner where you're like, hey, we'd love it if you guys just grew these four strains and I'm going to have them in pre-rolls and flower and kind of pair everything like that? Or is it kind of like... They're like, hey, Oliver, we're growing these. Which one do you want? Like, talk us through like that relationship that you have. It's been a mixed bag. And obviously, like, as we've grown and become bigger, we have, you know, more sway and power to kind of negotiate (laughs) because we've proven out like, oh, give us 100 pounds of like your best flour. I swear we're going to sell it. And then you sell, you know, five. It's never good. So we have consistent sales. We can kind of work on that. Yeah, I think the next iteration for us really, and again, the you know the root of who I am is I want to be able to bring our genetics from state to state. Obviously, they don't they're not going to be the same depending on how they're grown, but I would like that consistency and something like I'm really looking forward to now is like, and I've been talking to a lot of people of genetic catalogs. Like, where do we fit in? What do I want? Like, you know, I've seen. I'm an old school guy. I like I like the uh, the the original strains. So I'd, I'd like to go back there. We're not having such a hybrid. We can go back to a couple, you know. Sure. Sour and diesel. And, you know, sour and then, you know, seasonal strains, other things. But yeah, I want to keep the consistency and narrow focus a little bit. What strains come to mind? All sativas. <laughs> the green crack. I mean, I would love to have uh, 
any sort of like old train wreck. There's this cat piss strain that I used to love. I mean, just, you know, some of the original, like, you know, Northern Lights for Indica, just, you know, before everything started getting crossed, I think those ones are going to make a nice comeback. Is there any breeders out there that are just looking to bring some of those back that you like? Yeah, I've talked to them. They're all holding on to like seeds and like a pheno of one of these things. You never know kind of how that will pan out through the grow process. But like, oh, no, they've been holding. You know, I thought some of these were dead, but they're they're all around. And they're just waiting to bring them back. You got to know the people. Yeah. So I guess my question for you is, how does a brand like yours that's competing in California get mentioned Hollywood Porter, Lady Gaga, Harry Styles, Jenny Kinalsi. I mean, that is big credibility to, to instantly put yourself on that. How does a brand like yours kind of attract those type of eyeballs? I think just doing quality work. I mean, obviously we have a leg up being in LA. Like I do have access to, you know, some of these people, but like you see it, people aren't repping stuff just because, and I've never given money to any of these people. There's never any promises. It's like, yo, here, look what we're doing. And they've kind of just been like, this is dope. And like, you know, kind of build on that. And we, you know, we had a bunch of clothing and apparel when we first launched and I'm hoping to get back to. And I think that's kind of how you build something beyond, hey, hey, we're sending you an individual product. You either like it or you don't, Uh, you know, please share. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's smart marketing, right? And I I think that the the big takeaway there is that like your brand consistency of like speaking exactly to your customer is. I think that's what attracts individuals to identify with it. When they see your brand, they know instantaneously. They're like, this one is for me and and they pick it right up. So from a merch standpoint, was that like the original kind of concept is like, we're going to bring that merchandise and like the brand and and bring merge them together so that it's, it's helpful for customers to kind of identify the brand? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, clothing is what I love the most, to be quite honest. And I have the Higgs brand. Like, that is what it, what brings me the most joy of, like, finding fabrics. I was living in downtown in, like, Santee Alley. Like, I could go find everything myself and get it custom. I think because of how tough the cannabis industry is, I've had to focus so much effort on, like, the operation, regulations, expansion, like, opportunities that, like, that other side kind of isn't as strong as I would like it to be right now, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, it's, it's hard to do everything at the same time. Yeah. But it has to, otherwise people won't identify with it. Like, what are you really speaking to? Unless it's something, I don't want my brand, I don't want Higgs to ever represent, like, I want to go get fucked up this weekend. Let me go buy some Higgs. Or like, I want to feel this way. It's like, nah, I'm going to go golfing, surfing, skating, movies, and I'm going to grab a pack of Higgs because that's the activity that I want to pair cannabis with. And I think then if you can start showing that that's what your brand is all about, then you've built a real brand and you've built a real following and you've built real people. I think you see it with like, everyone's always trying to do collabs. You're like, Ooh, this person does this well. Let me get their audience with what I do. And like, that isn't always successful because like, then you're just, that's not necessarily who you authentically are. Yeah. I think that's more short-term thinking. And I think the way you've described your approach is like a fundamental, like ingrained thing. Just like when I go to play golf, I grab my golf clubs. Some people grab a six pack, but others could grab like a pack of eggs. Exactly. Yeah. That's split between the guys I go golfing with all the time. How, uh, how many iterations did you guys go through to like come up with the logo and kind of how clean it all looks? And it kind of touches on all of those points that you just mentioned in terms of it's not too loud. If I'm like going to be on a golf course, right. Like, it speaks to all of those things. So like, was it just like the first iteration or did that take some time? Like how long did it come up? Take you come up with that? I mean, the, like the logo, honestly, didn't like once we got going. I mean, I built those first boxes. Like, I would build the prototypes by hand with like an X Acto knife and super glue and like went to the art store and like I've built probably 40 to 60 of those. And then I, I would stamp that. them with an O stamp. <laughs> I built different colors and I just like figured out what the size was on like that. And then I sent that off to a factory and I was like, can you make the cleaner version of that? That came back and I was like, okay, we have something here. And then my first hire was this girl, Hannah Chung, who I absolutely like adore and like help create Higgs with me. You know, she can like mine my brain and add 
her own value as designer to everything we've done. And we just kind of sync up of everything we wanted, like the color palette of being like an early 90s California color palette mixed with just like a minimalist, simple design. You know, I don't want it to be like cannabis in your face. That was never what, you know, was going to elevate cannabis into the next stratosphere of the mainstream consumer of like loud imagery or like, you know, everything we saw from the counterculture that I love, but it's it, it, it screams. And it, I think like the comforting fact for me is like, it's, it does scream the nineties and that, that yeah. brings me comfort. And, and that's just not there anymore. Right. Everything has evolved. Most brands, I shouldn't say everything. Most brands have evolved to like a new consumer preference and have tried these new tactics and seeing yours just, I guess is kind of retro now thinking back on it, which is odd to, to say out loud. No. Yeah. I and mean, I think we just got kind of lucky, you know, like just like people gravitate to, to like to the logo. And it's not just because of the pack, like, I put them on like the clothing was successful. And like those people you mentioned before, cause we're like, this is just cool. And like, I can't, you can't ever know when something's gonna be cool or not. You can't, you can say, you can think, but like, you don't know. And it, it's been received very well. And so like, now I like, know the framework to work in. Like, I don't need to go so crazy. Like this base backgrounds with different, you know, it's a two color, three color palette. And it must have to be on the pink and blue. It's other fun things. Like our packs are different colors. Like, you know, we can do, we can do much, a lot of different things within that range. It must've been pretty validating though, to like position yourself as a brand that's a little different than everyone else. And then sort of get the feedback and the eyeballs from some bigger celebrities. Maybe that didn't influence you much, but just knowing that it was resonating with certain people and connecting with the type of audience that you're, you're looking to deliver on. No, it's super cool. And like, people have asked me like, what separates your brand? I'm like, it's the like the packaging and brand. Like, I don't know how else to say it to you, except for these, like I have all the people telling me that's why they're buying the product. Like, I'm not telling you this, like, this is why. And like, I can't tell you anything different. But that's, I mean, that's like what a brand is though, right? Exactly. Like when you, when that's why I don't know why shop. they want a different answer every time. I'm like, why are you, why are you buying that handbag? Why are you buying those shoes? Why are you buying anything? Cause you think it looks cool or like, you know, it's not usually because you saw some celebrity wearing it. That's not how most people really do. That helps elevate whatever you're doing. But there has to be a general like, I see that thing in a window and I want it. Right. And that's just like the naturalist way. And I, I, that's my favorite question when I ask people when they walk into like a, a dispensary or even a CVS or, or a Target, like, and they buy a product surrounded by a hundred different options. Why did you choose that one? You didn't know any of them. Why did you choose that one? They're like, I don't know. Yeah, I just nothing about it. And then hopefully the quality is good enough. Right. But then you've built a loyal lifetime customer. And that's like my job is like, okay, cool. I know people like this brand. I better fill it with some very quality stuff at a good price because otherwise they'll never buy it again. And then it's just a pretty box with bullshit in it. Uh, speaking of the, the product that's inside of it, it's outdoor flower. What was kind of the motivation behind going the outdoor route, right? It's, well, it's uh, not outdoor. I mean, it's honestly it's everywhere. Correct, it's right? a little different. So in okay, California, okay. it's greenhouse because I think yeah. they can do like Deb Greenhouse. I think that yeah. quality and the farm we're working with possible you know, who's growing some of the best, you know, flower, I think, in the state, regardless of uh, yeah. method, you can reach that equivalent in California, like you can grow 90% of the U.S.'s agriculture there. Yeah. Michigan, we grow indoor because I want the quality to be on that same level, but okay. they can't grow the same quality outdoor light depth that they can in California. And then, yeah. you know, as you expand to Canada, you know, each operation we talk about, I don't have the luxury of having a main distribution hub. Otherwise, it probably all would come from California, be way cheaper and distribute all over the country and the world. But like a normal, you know, normal everywhere you go, where do I want this, you know, maintain my quality of standards. So I do have those customers that want to come back. And don't feel like they're getting ripped off. Like, do you have like a sheet that you like give out when you like partnered with your cultivation partner in Michigan, where you're like, hey, the flower has to check these boxes for us to use it in our our product? Like, how does that whole conversation go? 
Uh, honestly, that's been a lot dictated by consumers, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> like when we've like, I don't think you've seen these social smoke brands work because like the consumer just doesn't want it. So then you do have to put certain thresholds of like THC percentages. Like I can't sell something for 16% guys. Like, so that can never go in. You're gonna have to do something else with that. So it's more of those like weird synthetic ones that like aren't yeah. necessarily like, I need to smell like, you know, strawberries and whipped cream. Like I need to hit certain numbers. So when that consumer does like grab the Higgs pack, and then like, oh, this is cool. I want this. Mm, I don't want that anymore because the TAC are like, oh, I do want that because, you know, it's a relevant value that someone's told me. <laughs> is there like, is there certain strains when you go to Michigan, for example, do you meet with a grower and do you get to try five or six different strains and go, this one is the Higgs one, this one, not right now. How does that work? That's why obviously still one of my favorite processes. Yeah, sounds, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, there's not a single Higgs that I haven't, like of the flower that I haven't tried personally. Yeah, uh, wow. there will be a day where I think that can't survive. But as far as it's been, I've pretty much sampled everything, and yeah, and like you know, I've I've picked within their range of what I want it to be. You're a, a true scientist. Yeah, no, I, no, not scientist. I'm a, <laughs> an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. Is there is there been a strain where you've tried it and you're like, this is awesome, but it doesn't fit under the Higgs brand? Yeah, of course. Like even our indicas, I don't want that to be a heavy, sleepy indica. So if it's like hitting me and I instantly want to go to sleep, like that's not for my consumer. I want that still to be someone who wants to be like, not necessarily active, but like doesn't need a cerebral head high. Because that's why I was smoking indica, but also isn't using it for sleep. You know, there's so many iterations of cannabis and all the cannabinoids of what it can do for someone. Like I try and focus like in California, we actually have like a main title of like uplifting sativa happy hybrid and carefree indica. And then underneath that, I'm going to tell you what strains are in there or what makes up that strain. So we have a little bit of leeway to kind of tell you, but it's fitting in with this like overall parameter of a feeling I want you to have when smoking it. You ever, how much does the paper affect the kind of experience of the flower? Is there some flowers where you're like, Hey, this is awesome to smoke out of a bong, but when I roll it in a joint, the paper kind of affects the taste a little. Is it, is any of that kind of stuff occur? I think that's personal preference. Like, okay. you know, I'm in a bong in like six years, but like it's falling on my days of when I used to smoke bongs. Again, I'm a joint smoker. As you talked about, like that paper does make a difference. Like I'm a like elements person through and through because like I think that makes the weed taste the best, you know? Uh, and so again, when we talk about not putting weed in cigarette papers, it's because like no matter what, you're going to taste that paper. I don't think cigarette people care because you're like, they've perfected that, but not cannabis people can't be just like sticking flour and dark white. <laughs> like even those are even like darker than those like, like orange zigzags. I like were the original papers only. And like, go back to that time you, you grabbed that Indica, right? And you were like, this is, this rips, but it's just not for the brand. Have you thought about spinning up like a sub brand or another category just to test the market, knowing that you had a really good strain that you might be able to hit, but just like on a different, not under the umbrella, but slightly to the right. No, I honestly, I don't even have like uh, that bandwidth to even think about like the sub brand yet. Like we talk about, like I'd rather put that effort into making sure and building a fence around what we're doing well already. And then adding to the other elements that's going to help build a brand, not necessarily on like the product category. I think we're pretty set on product categories for now. Like I feel good. I don't think I want to do any more R and D and come up with new packaging and all this stuff. I think now it's building the, you know, ancillary lifestyle side around it or the other goods to go with it. Like we got some, our own custom papers now, actually. Right. Yeah, that's cool. And then, you know, did some uh, custom grinders with our friends at Crush. Well, just double thing. So, oh, wow. you know, building out the whole, everything. Uh, that's, that's, that's good 
like focus on the North star, right? Because it could be very easy when you try that, that product to be like, Oh, this is fire. I'm just going to spin up a new brand. I like doing this. I can definitely create it, but it's good focus to double down on what you're doing best. And I, I give you a ton of props because that's not an easy decision to make. Once you try that strain that you know is good, but you know, it's just not fitting underneath your umbrella. And I think it's the same thing we talk about of like chasing other brands and product categories and being like, Oh my God, everyone's doing edibles. Let's make an edible. And then you're spending 12 months trying to perfect a recipe and that. And by that time, maybe someone's on other things. So yeah, it's, I think you can get lost trying to chase people. Like I'm not, I'm not here to chase. I think I'm just trying to <laughs> just whatever. This is what I think is like in my head and in my brain is like an artist that's trapped in a businessman's body or like vice versa to like give to the world. Like truly that's like what my the whole approach is. How do you balance I think the it's resources? Cool I should make this. <laughs> yeah, like, How do you balance the resources of like continue to push your brand in the states you're in versus maybe expanding into new states? Like, how do you balance that? I mean, it's funny you mention that because like I think I'm finally at a place. I mean, it's weird because like we've launched into four states in the U.S. and we're currently only congratulations because yeah. no, but you know we're it's only two deal. because some of those didn't work out. And I think oh. overly chasing, and I think that happened a lot earlier in cannabis of like, oh, here's there's not so many states that are opening up. So if one does, let's go see an attack and see if we can get in there. And I think that spreads your resources thin. I, I think that's not great. We mentioned like California was so hard. I knew instantly that it can't be the only place, but I think trying just to chase every opportunity isn't the right way to go. So I think I was in the last year, just like making sure we do well where we're at. You know, we already had plans to launch into Canada uh, with a couple of different product categories and uh, provinces out there. So now just make sure those are turned on. Those are good. We have loyal customers. We have sell through. We have people that really love the brand so that like not you ever want to think it's turned on, but like you're not putting all that initial effort you need from a brand, which is like losing money, quite frankly, for a year and a half in order to build up that kind of like market share, brand equity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so I think now I can be very strategic on where those next moves are and kind of how much of us we want to give to those people. Like, I'd much, you know, we're very hands-on in all the states we're at, salespeople marketing. I think there's now a nice hybrid we can do because we're already licensing our brand to license that out to bigger MSOs that already have that kind of infrastructure who might be in some of the states we're already in or some of the states or countries that we're also not in. And so like we can bring, you know, a certain book to the equation and they can double that overnight or however you want to piece that together, so to speak. Those are lessons only learned the hard way, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah. So you asked me originally, like, oh, it's been easy. It's like, no, there's nothing easy. Like, <laughs> the amount of like, I just like threw out a bunch of like old packaging that like from my garage. I was like, well, I'm just never going to use this. Like stop holding on to this. And just like got a trash bin filled with like just what could have been or what was, you know, wasted. But that's like out money. But that's like those. Are, it felt like throwing out money. I was like, gotcha. But those are the parts <laughs> for like when you hear someone who goes, "Oh, I'd love to start like a brand." I, you know, I grew my closet, and like I, I think that's the parts that I think people just don't ever like think through, just how challenging these areas are, and how many opportunities or failure there are, and how you have to have just consistent resiliency to every day get up and continue to push forward. Complete. I don't think I could do what I did seven years ago. Now today, like I launched my company with nothing. Like I grew a bunch of outdoor flour. I had these prototypes. I got it to a certain point where I showed someone like, okay, give me a little money over here, but still not much. So I appreciate that I got into cannabis when I did because it was the only time in the world you could kind of ever go navigate. Like I try and go into alcohol right now. Like I need $10 million to like advertise. Like it's just like, you can't do it the same. And so I have been able to been like, okay, I'm here. Where are we going? Pivot at all times, head on a swivel, 
like make sure you're actually making money. Like we're actually a profitable company. Like we can actually run a real business here. It might be smaller than others, but I don't have a risk of it falling apart. Uh, as, as you've seen with, you know, it's organic, it's smart. Doses who had, you know, crazy valuations that are no longer here because, you know, they thought the world was coming. <laughs> what was one of the biggest differences between the markets where when you were expanding that succeeded and the ones where you didn't succeed? What do you think the biggest difference was? So Colorado, for one, I think it went through a lot of, iter- as soon as we launched there, it went through, it's like so many different iterations of like deli style. Now we're MSO heavy. Now we have no product. Now we have out- everyone relying on outdoor harvest. It's gone. So it was just like, and we tried to do like have operations there. So just seeing that. And then, you know, Oklahoma was another one where you're just like, okay, I can, I know why you failed. I mean, <laughs> you have more licenses in California. So it's like, it, each one's its own unique thing, but like, it's very visible why it didn't work out. And I think, you know, being mature enough to being like, this isn't working. Let's move on. There are going to be plenty of other opportunities out there later. Like we're still just at the precipice of kind of where we are. It's obviously going to tumble fast. And I think we're seeing that very recently where all of a sudden overnight, it's either you're illegal or you're not, and it's never going to change from there. But we still have a lot of time. Like there's still a lot of places that aren't online that like, I feel like we can approach it knowing all the things we've learned from the last seven years and seeing all the positive failures and approaching the right way. Is operating in Canada significantly different than say operating your Michigan or your your California facilities? Uh, From a compliance perspective and packaging perspective, which is kind of like the heart of our business. Yes, because you need eight different health Canada warnings. And like every day they got to use a different one and like you can't really brand anything. And then like, so yeah, it's like I can sell my pack in the United States and that has its own branding because Higgs is on that box. No matter where they bring that, that's somewhere. In Canada, as soon as they take that out of that box, it's a empty white <laughs> and pink inside box. So like you really have to like reinforce the it in a different way. So what do you do? Uh, I mean, just again, adding to the clothing, adding to the events, adding to the bud tender educations and the promotions. Like you have to do that so much more so they know like that you're the brand behind it. Yeah, I mean, because if, if your name's not on the, the product, it's nearly challenging oh, for, your, yeah. <laughs> for your branding to stand out for the product. <laughs> so let's talk about the events, the, the Buds on the Rose. What, what was the inspiration behind that? And like, take, take our listeners through what that event was. Throwing parties and events is one of my favorite things in the world. I've been throwing parties since I threw like my high school prom, threw for my like football team where we won a game. I'm obviously for London, I threw parties. So that's just like, I enjoy throwing events. And as you mentioned, like we talked about a little earlier, like, Higgs doesn't really sponsor a bunch of stuff. Like, I, don't, I think you get lost in that brand value. Like, whenever I throw something, I want to be like, Higgs is producing this event. And this is what we're all about. Like, our launch party in Venice had, like, corrupt at a backyard. It was, like, that classic, like, I want you to drink. I want you to smoke a little bit. I want you to have, like, a legendary West Coast rapper in, like, an intimate house in Venice, like, rapping for 200 people. So the Buzz on Rose was kind of just a cool idea where I figured we could get everyone in the community involved in this kind of 420 celebration. I rented a house at the end of Rose. So like Rose Avenue's in Venice. It's, you know, really only about seven blocks. I've been in Venice for a while in LA. So I knew much, a bunch of the owners. So I said, Hey, we're going to throw this kind of block party. Will you get on board? And like during a certain hour, I will pay for whatever promotion we're running. But there was like at Makai at the time, there was like a pink Higgs margarita. We were giving uh, free haircuts at uh, the barbershop right there. Rose Collective participates. So you got like a discount on Higgs. And then I threw the party at the end and we had like bands and, you know, a bunch of other fun stuff there. Now we paced the whole walls in Venice. Like that was, that was it was real fun. 
is something like that, like an idea. And then like people are like, oh, that's cool. But like that'll never work. And then you just kind of get started with that. Like how does something like that start from an idea and then go from like an actual event? I think that's just like everything I've always done as an entrepreneur and like why I want to start a brand like that. That thing's not hard for me. That's just like fun to kind of maneuver and work through those things. Like I threw that party for like $5,000. <laughs> you know, that's I threw awesome. a massive block party for no money because of like understanding what people want and like how to build a cool event that gives something back to the people, the community and the businesses. Like it's not an isolated, it's all, all for us. It's like, how can I make this whole world fun? How, even if I have a house party, can I have little areas, which is like little like tucked away treasures. And like, that's always been like kind of the ethos. Of, of any sort of good event, I think. Yeah, and I would imagine that the eyeballs you got from that are well worth the $5,000 you saw because from a brand equity and standing standing like people saw the name, they registered the name, and they had a great fucking time, which delivered on that kind of that emotional feel that people have when they go to select a brand, they go, I don't know why I know this brand. I want this brand, but I just feel that. Completely. And I only mentioned the money because like it should have cost us a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, you know? yeah for sure. That's what I was thinking. So it's like... So yeah, 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 building communities. You know, everyone always talks about that. I want to build a community. I want to build a community. But like, you know, yoga, you know, on a beach isn't building necessarily like a community. You got to do it on a bigger scale, I think. I think some people are are more scared or hesitant to try to take on that challenge. Just knowing like what you said, it's fun for you, right? It's easy for you to do because like for you, you're like, well, I'll just find out what this person wants and I'll provide them value for that, which I think a lot of people, most people struggle with that area. They see a challenge and they're like, well, it's too hard. I'm never going to pay that person enough for letting me do it. Instead, you're like, Hey, this will be helpful for you. What do you think? And they're like, this makes sense. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I guess because of how challenging cannabis is, like all these other things that I'm doing are very challenging. Don't get me wrong, but they feel they pale in comparison for like the everyday struggles over the last seven years. And just like making sure we still have a company every month. For sure. Have we done any other events since? Uh, I don't think quite on that scale. That was also like right before COVID. And then we kind of just like lost that. I think we're kind of picking back up. Uh, I have different focuses of kind of what I want to do. I won't kind of mention here, but I got some fun ideas of kind of these little satellite pop-ups that I'm going to start doing everywhere. Uh, then I can bring some value. And then we talk about clothing. There will be a Higgs Invitational Golf Tournament this spring for the launch of our first capsule collection. So there'll be some news coming out in the next few months about that. So excited about that clothing drop and just like that whole event. Because that's just like, that's a cool event to me. And that's like, you know, structured within a, you know, area. Like that's easier than throwing a block party. Do you want to oh. share more about that? Uh, as, the, as the details come, hopefully this is just the first thing if people want to end up reaching out or, you know, they hear about this and there's something they want to get involved with, um, open ears. But yeah, it's it's far enough away that I want to kind of mention anything just yet. How much product do you guys, do you like, how do you determine how much product to bring to these events to like give away? And, and is it like, Hey, we're going to try to just push pre-rolls. Is that kind of a conversation or is it's like, it's just the brand, bring what we have and we're going to give it all away. Kind of, how does that uh, The answer is you can never bring enough. <laughs> Smart. Uh, always, honestly, always pre-rolls. That's like, what is the defining brand of ours? Yeah. Like, everything else we do is cool, but not like our packs are individuals, even our minis, like that's, they know that's the Higgs brand yeah. without even seeing our logo. Like that's what we did first. And we kind of have that, but it's funny. Like, even when I go out like socially, like I'll go out to dinner and I'm like, all right, bring some Higgs packs out. You might miss that. <laughs> I'll have like, it doesn't matter if I bring two packs or 12 packs out. I return with zero every time. <laughs> That's I a good song. When we're in Miami, I just hey, oh, here you go. Here you go. Here yeah, that's go. how it caught my eye. I was like, Wh whose brand is this? You're like, it's mine. I was like, I'm going to like to learn more. 
<laughs> oh. Talk to us about California. Uh, obviously, a lot of people talk about how challenging it is. We've seen some of the MSOs that have been in there decide, absolutely not. This is not for us. And we've seen some of the other companies in there, some of the bigger ones, struggle with surviving. Is it as dogfight as everyone describes? And take us from an inside look from your perspective. Like, what do you think is needed in order to be successful? And is it as intimidating as everyone says? I think it's worse than people think it is. And that I can just say that. I mean, there is no way they're going to fix this problem because they just don't understand, like at least on the government level, what the root of the problem is. Like you're never going to have a successful industry if you have this high of taxes and this big a black market. Like at least go after one, but they're not going to be successful at going after either. So that from just the start isn't, you know, isn't going to work well for anyone. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not like competition. It's not oversaturation. I mean, there's a lot of that, but it's really just, you can't run a business here. And then it keeps getting pushed forward or whatever you want to call it backwards. Where like, then like, we don't get paid, you know, <laughs> like everyone's struggling. If people are like, well, if it's between you and the tax man, I'm paying the tax man. Well, I'm like, well, then they need to take less money. Cause like, then like, I think they're almost doing it a way to like, okay, we allowed everyone to kind of have a shot at this, knowing you guys were all going to fail because we set you up to fail. And then we can come swoop in and like actually put a totality type version of this on, onto the world or California. Yeah. It's tough because uh, I probably see a similar uh, strategy that was behind all of that as well, um, which is just, you know, it's disheartening to try to be in your, in your shoes, you know, um, it sucks for how the regulators handled the rollout for California and the size of the market and all that stuff. I mean, we've heard it been described as even California is not even one market. It's fragmented and every single city is its own market as well within the state of California. Oh, yeah. And then, like, if you want to get into, like, the burner distros and, like, shipping most of the product out to New York, like, that's happening in, like, a legal way, too. And it's like, what happens when, like, New York no longer needs all of that flour? We always will. What's going to happen then to the, <laughs> you know, the, the two biggest states you're servicing, all of a sudden servicing one? Like, that's Armageddon, you know? Yeah. Like, so I mean, we'll see. And that's why, like, I'm, yeah, we position ourselves to be more than just a cannabis company, more than just a California cannabis company. And I, I think that's the only way to kind of survive through this. And the MSOs will come back whenever they want. But like, they also were tired of bleeding money because yeah. unless you can do what we do, which is like be small and malleable. And it's like, I just want to be in a select number of shops in Southern California and like, a, you know, a few scattered around. So like you can get our brand. Great. But if you're trying to make, make or break in California, it's, it, it's going to be a nightmare for you. For sure. It's definitely not worth it for them from like a number standpoint when they can fight in a, let's call it a less competitive market that's limited where they can make a turn on their value back. For them, they're like, well, I don't need to fight for margins here where I, I am guaranteed margins. No, and they need their bankroll now. Right. Like yeah. they didn't think they ever like needed to like have a surplus of cash because like you're always just drawing. But like now it's like, oh, we we aren't going to be able to just draw from the well. So like, how do we have that extra chunk of money to like actually reinforce what we're doing well or go after a better opportunity? Were you ever close to, to closing up shop? And if so, what broke to, to alter your path? Every month since I've had a company for seven years, I've wondered if we're closing up shop. <laughs> like that's been the struggle of like a, you know, like trying to run a like, you, you know, cannabis company. Like I have every month wondered if we're still going to have a company and just like persevering and believing you can't, you know? And then, you know, I think the most important book I ever read in my life was Shoe Dog, Phil Knight's book. And you're like, Oh, okay. Well, this was a 50 year endeavor for you. And the first 15 of that, when it wasn't even called Nike was doing the same thing, wondering if there was much, like, you're like, just have faith that it's all going to come together at certain times. Cause if you don't, it doesn't, you know, like. Spelling tigers out of his car. 
Yeah. (laughs) And like, you know, taking accounting jobs on the side and, you know, whatever it has to do, but still having your sight on, I'm going to make this work. And if you have to believe that or else you're going to fail. And so that's the only mindset you can really have is it's never going to fail. I don't like to lose. I don't, I'm never going to let my company fail. Dream smoking session, three people dead or alive. Bob Marley, Bill Clinton. I don't know who his third is. They got to fit into the trio. Do they though? I mean, I feel like those two are getting along with like really anyone. Um, I'd like to smoke with Willie Nelson, I think. Although everyone tells me that's a terrible idea, even the song of I'll Never Smoke Weed with Willie again. I would just like to see how, you know, he's probably lost it now, but, you know, a true legendary OG smoker. Yeah. Go-to character on GoldenEye. I'm a Bond guy. That's my whole life. We're sitting here five years from now. What have you accomplished? We've launched... You know, a full, we've launched a bunch of clothing collections. We're in, uh, you know, hopefully a couple different countries. You know, we're in my home state of New York, finally. We're in my home alma mater of University of Miami in Florida. Just kind of places that I, honestly, I just want to like be where I want to live to. <laughs> so <laughs> if I can just keep expanding to places that uh, we sell, no. Uh, yeah, just keep going along that, you know, we keep doing what we've been doing. And, you know, we've, we've built something that people respect and that they like. When you got started in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? Um, I mean, I got right on the thinking of where we wanted brands to go. I got wrong on how to how that was going to go. Or just that cannabis like was going to be much harder to advertise from a third-party perspective than anyone realized. Like, even if you're authentically a stoner, smoker, whatever you want, people aren't necessarily following you. So that makes sense. That's why I don't think any of the celebrity brands have kind of done well because it takes it takes a lot for someone to be like, oh, I want to do this just because that person's doing it on a, on a product like cannabis. It works for every other product except for cannabis, weirdly. I think it's not authentic is my, is my guess. And I think they don't like, they don't have that like ingrained in them. They don't, it doesn't feel like that natural approach when you see them with the product. That's, that'd be my guess on why. No, I, I agree. I think so. All right, prediction time. Higgs, the Buds on a Rose event seems like a novel approach to cannabis marketing community engagement. Do you predict that such events will become a norm? And how do you see these events growing over the next 10 years? Yes, I do hope they become the norm as long as people start to understand that like when you're throwing a cannabis event, it's not just for cannabis consumers. It is for everyone. And if you want people to adopt this industry and make it even more mainstream than it is already like it can't just be so focused on marijuana it has to be focused on the good time you're going to have and that is a part of whatever else you're being presented so i think as you know the events get bigger i mean i would love to throw a music a higgs music festival if you want to ask where that is higgs will be throwing a music festival in within the next decade and with our own artists and presenting that elevated elevated version of buds on rose is basically that and maybe it's a fun little like you know, like downtown treasure map that like a bunch of different stages, like outside lands. But like, I think that's where we can really go. We're not just like a little booth at outside lands. You are presenting the whole festival and then buying the New York Jets and renaming the stadium Higgs Life Stadium. I love it. I love it. <laughs> you could have to fight Gary on that. Kellen, what's your guess? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to kind of piggyback on uh, what Higgs said. Um, but I think that instead of it being like cannabis companies throwing cannabis events, I think you're going to see events in general start to incorporate different form factors of cannabis 
into any event that you see. Right. So if like you go to like some conference that has nothing to do with cannabis, there's going to be options at the event to partake in both cannabis and say alcohol. So I think that that's kind of going to be the progression of quote unquote cannabis in events. Um, I do think that there are going to be a ton more cannabis events out there. Uh, I'm really excited about more infused dinners and really excited about uh, consumption lounges uh, moving forward. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think spot on both of what you guys said, I think it is so, so important. I think we need to stop saying that people are cannabis consumers and start looking at it from a societal standpoint that when people go to events, they can be options and people can select as an adult where they want alcohol, cannabis, both, whatever they want, because that is the choice. And as responsible adults, we should be able to select products that they're looking for. And I think the sooner they're integrated into society, the sooner the stigma starts to come down and people don't look at it the same way, right? If somebody cracks a beer at 12 o'clock at the beach, nobody looks twice. And I think we're, we're, we're approaching that where someone can do that with some sort of cannabis consumption and people just will assume it's the same way they're relaxing and the expectation will, hopefully that'll be before 10 years, but I'm excited for that music festival. Yeah, me too. Hicks so, stadium is what I'm excited for. I mean, that would be sick. So Hicks, our <laughs> listeners, they want to get in touch and they want to learn more about the merchandise and some of the events. Where can they find you? Start following at Higgs on Instagram and you'll start seeing some of these drops, some of these events that are going to start coming out that Golf Fanatic talked about. And uh, yeah, it's the best way to get access to us. Uh, you want to email me, uh, ollie at higgs.live. Awesome. We'll look at all the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.